Go ahead and find your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Go ahead and stand with me. I'll read the passage, and then we'll see what's in it for us and see if I can preach a sermon that actually reflects it. Luke chapter 13. This is the reading of God's holy word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all, other, all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this passage as we understand what's in it. I pray that you would help us to cut through the distractions that come in our lives, but particularly during the Christmas season, that we would understand the true surprising nature of your incarnate work coming to be with us, Emmanuel. God, it's an amazing thing. It's something that, frankly, we take for granted. We're surprised by the wrong things. I pray this sermon is something we can come back to again and again and again to retune our hearts. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the the way I want to start this for a little bit is, again, I'm going to dress the sermon in Christmas garb, if you will, and then we'll get into the middle, the meaty middle of it, which is a punch in the face. And so uh, go with me to Matthew chapter two, and I want to sort of establish a little bit what I think is going on and some stuff that we might miss. Now, I grew up uh, not, you know, I had Christmas. We had Christmas celebrations in my household, but I didn't grow up in a religious sense of Christmas. I didn't, I didn't focus on these stories, didn't understand anything about them. And so Surprise, surprise, once I became a Christian and started really reading the Bible, I was kind of shocked by all the, the stuff that actually happened during sort of the Christmas scenes that we're used to. And one of the most shocking things, and I, I remember reading this and being shocked by it when I was the, the first year I was a Christian, and I've never ceased to be so shocked by it. But go to Matthew chapter 2, and let's look at what we see. Now, even though it says after he's born in Bethlehem, I, I want to focus on a few things about Christmas because it's all part of that story. So Matthew chapter two, verse one, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And there's all sorts of documentaries and stories and you can talk all about why the star and what's going on. All right, whatever, but that's not the surprising thing to me. What was surprising is he asked them where he's going to be born, right? For he saw a star in verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now this word troubled is interesting. They were troubled by what news? Wait, where has he been born king of the Jews? They were troubled all of a sudden. This gave them consternation. It, it basically was interrupting their, their system and assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Now, keep in mind, the chief priests and the scribes, these are the same people that you're going to see questioning Jesus all through his ministry and his life. The chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, this whole scene, we know after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they'd seen when it rose went before him until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, stop before you get too far and think for a minute. In Luke's gospel, we don't have this scene. In Luke's gospel, we have a similar effect with the shepherds, that the angels appear to the shepherds in a field. And what shepherds and wise men have in common is that they're outcasts, right? Shepherds are the outcasts of society. These wise men are pagans from another culture. And it's both these people that have, that have no business celebrating like this birth. They're the ones that are doing it. They're the ones that are, that are getting the, the good news of great joy, so to speak, that we see. And the, it's the wise men, these pagan enchanters and wise men that come and bring gifts to Jesus, right? They bring gifts to baby Jesus and Mary and they find him and, oh, and so what happens? They, and they worship him. Going to the house, they saw the Mary and they fell down and worshiped the child. And they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we know later that Herod in verse 15 or 16, rather, they, they lead the other way. They run to Egypt. And it says, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Again, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, what's important about this, I think is interesting is first of all, at the birth of Christ, you see what we saw last week. Jesus says, I didn't come, I came to divide people. And his birth did that, didn't it? His birth divided people because at his birth, we see people either coming to worship Jesus or wanting to murder Jesus. And we see a direct divide right down the line that those are the two options essentially that you have. But the one that surprises me the most is actually earlier on already. So Herod is there, but what surprised me is that they're not surprised at the birth of Jesus. The, the, the wise men come and say, hey, where's, he, where's the Christ going to be born? Like, yeah, over there. That was it. They're like, yeah, over there. Go check it out. Why aren't they going to check it out? Why isn't anyone else going? Why is it they leave it to the pagans to go? Because they, they didn't really believe. Think about this for a minute. The greatest news in the history of the world would not have even made the local paper. They, they could have cared less. And it wasn't because they didn't know about it. They certainly knew about it. That was the part that bothers me the most about this story is that they were totally unsurprised about the fact that, yeah, the Christ is going to be born out there. He's right, he's right over there. The little baby over there right now is, you know, God in the flesh. Anyways, and just go about their life. They could have cared less. Does that weird you out? It weirds me out. Nonetheless, they remain unmoved, uninspired, uncurious, and again, shockingly unsurprised. But if you fast forward 2,000 years to now, are we that much different? See, Christmas is meant to be surprising. There's something shockingly, amazingly surprising about this. So hopefully we can capture that. Let's take a quick look at a video. Go to Luke chapter 12, because somehow our sermon is going to relate to the things we heard last week. And I want to begin for a moment with this sort of crazy passage. And so last week, Jesus is in the midst of, you know, do, there's a lot of stuff happening ultimately. But if you look at verse 49 for a moment, verse 49, in the midst of all these things, uh, Jesus talking about his return and all this stuff, he says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, this doesn't mean a campfire. <laughs> all right, we're going to see this in a little bit. He's talking about his judgment. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. It means I can't wait till it happens. 
Now he's talking about judgment. Now this is something that we're not used to uh, that Jesus is saying. He goes on and says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's referring to him going, his passion to go to the cross, to die on the cross. It's referred to as this baptism, this passion. He's going to enter in and, and take on sin for, for those who would believe in him. He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? And we're like, yeah, kind of. Isn't that what we celebrate on Christmas? <laughs> I mean, like you came to bring peace on earth. He goes, no, but rather division. Now, there is peace through him, but right, not yet. And ultimately, only, only for those people in their hearts. He, he came, do you think I came to make peace on earth? No, but I tell you, rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother. Just in case you forgot what division looks like, he wants to make sure you really get it. He really means what he says. Now, the surprise in our passage like, is the wrong thing. Like, what do I mean by that? We are surprised as you're reading through this passage, and I know that we're all surprised on a general basis when we read this passage, that Jesus talks about his wrath in this comfortable way. That's the thing that shocks us. We, we're shocked that gentle Jesus, you know, the red letters of scripture, right? That, that we're shocked that the gentle Jesus says, I can't wait to judge. <laughs> That's the shocking part to us. Does that make sense? And it's shocking that the Prince of Peace came to bring division. That's the part that shocks us. But here's the thing. If we actually read the Bible and pay attention, that's the part that should not be shocking. It's the next part that should be shocking. Notice what he says. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rise in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And then when you see the south wind blowing, you say there'll be a scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, he says, judgment's coming any day. And that's the part we're shocked by. But the real shocker is the present time, him standing before him. And notice what he says. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over the officer and the officer put you in prison. And I tell you, you will never get out until you paid the very last penny. He's saying judgment is coming. That's for sure. I can't wait till it happens. But the present time, it's not here yet. And as we're on our way to judgment, make sure you settle with your accuser, him, before the time is up. The shock is not the judgment. The shock is the mercy. And we get it wrong. And we get it wrong every time. And so there's a bunch of reasons why we get it wrong, but ultimately we get it wrong because we usually are shocked by the wrong things when it comes to a lot of stuff, mainly as it relates to death. Now, one of my favorite guys, whenever I think about death, is this guy, Matt McCauley. He wrote a great book called Remember Death. I refer to it constantly. He also wrote a great article that I put in the, in the study. And he says this, he says, Christmas in American culture is a mishmash of distinctly Christian content and all sorts of accumulated traditions. I, for one, am mostly fine with that, but I do wonder if you've noticed one particular difference between old Christmas carols and more recent popular songs. The old songs often refer to death. The new ones rarely do. For example, here's a few. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We say, so it says, from the depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. For example, hark the herald angels sing. Not hark, like not the heralds, not the angels' name, but hark the, her the herald angels sing. He says, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. 
And again, here's a song, Good Christian Men Rejoice. It says, now you need not fear the grave. Peace, peace, Jesus Christ was born to save. Here's another one. Lo, how a rose air blooming. Don't even know that one, but it says, the flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God from sin and death. He saves us and lightens every load. So to celebrate Christmas, these old writers emphasize death. Their celebrations didn't make sense without it. Today, to celebrate Christmas, we avoid death altogether, and our celebrations, I would argue, cannot survive its challenge. In other words, because we want to minimize death's effect and minimize the judgment of God and the wrath of God, we are unable to be properly surprised and joyous on Christmas. True story. We're unable to be properly shocked. Instead, it's a ho-hum, yeah, yeah, whatever, but we're shocked by the wrong things. We're shocked constantly by the wrong things, and that goes into our passage today. Thankfully, Jesus continues to explain what he means when he says, settle with your accuser on the way, and really continues the same theme from last week, but a bit more poignantly. The main idea we will see is very, very simple. We are surprised by calamity, and we should be surprised by Christmas. Let's take a quick look and see what it looks like. Here's the first part. When I say take a quick look, it doesn't mean we're always going to a video. All right. So verse one, it says, there were some present at that very time. So as Jesus is talking about the present time, do you see how this relates us to the last portion? Earlier he said, hey, you can't, just, you can't um, don't you know what the present time is that we're on our way to just judgment right now? This is the present time. And then he links this. Remember in your Bible, there's no, not supposed to be chapters and verses. That's just later we added. He says, there were some there was some present at that very time, the very time that's on the way. That's he's, Luke's linking us to the passage previously. Do you see that? And there's some at the present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So in other words, this is the outrageous news event of the day. So in the news cycle of the day, this was, this was like, I don't know, this is the Twin Towers falling. This was Elon Musk buying Twitter. This was, uh, you know, whatever happens, this is war in Ukraine. This is the event of the day that everyone's talking about. And so the event, we don't know exactly what is referring to, but based on just the idiomatic sort of phrasing here, what it looks like they're referring to is a moment where these Galileans were making a sacrifice and Pilate had in the midst of their sacrificial offering, it sounds like these, these Galilean Jews were making a sacrifice and uh, Pilate comes in and basically there's a massacre during the midst of the sacrifice and it was outrageous. And so they asked Jesus what he thinks about it, essentially. They're like, hey, you know, what's up? What do you think about this? right? That's kind of the idea here. There were some present at that very time, but here's the thing. Uh, when this happens, there's some present at the very time that happens. It says, and he answered them, do you think? So you're thinking to yourself, oh, wait, did they ask him a question? Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Go back. I, I'm looking for the question here. Let me see. Look, see, look at verse one. There was some present at the very time who told him, okay, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their side. Okay, good. They told him about it. They weren't asking him a question. It was like, hey, did you check this out, Jesus? Here's some juicy gossip. And he answered them, man, that's a bummer, right? We should, we should help them out. That's a, that's a tragedy. You know, why does bad things happen? To good? None of that, that's, that's his answer. He uses and changes it in a way that we're not, we're not ready for. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So for example, I remember when um, uh, New Orleans was uh, flooded way back in the day, way back in the day, a few years ago, all right? And uh, New Orleans was flooded, and people were like, oh, it's because New Orleans is such a bad place. I'm like, so you think San Diego is better? 
that we're more moral here? Oh, Vegas. Oh, it's because it's Vegas. God's judging Vegas. Oh, but he's not going to judge San Diego. Like, we tend to do this. This was a Jewish way to do this. It's the karmic view of bad things happening, right? I, you know, um, I, I saw one people say um, earlier when uh, the, what is it called? Hurricanes happening. Oh, it's because Ron DeSantis uh, opened up too early. That's why that's happening, right? He's, that's the new karmic view of the of, uh, you know, environmental gods. But, uh, but anyways, the basic idea he's saying to them is like, do you think that these folks died because they were worse than other people? Do you think that on September 11th, the people that were there in that tower perished because they were worse than the people that weren't? Like some people say, well, why did that happen to them? And you know, that's kind of the idea. He said, he's, he's really putting it right on him. And then he goes on in verse three and says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, now repent means to, in Luke's gospel, the repentance is the invitation to believe in the gospel. Repentance means to change your mind, to turn from one view to the other. Repentance is the picture of recognizing your need for a savior to reject your previous self-righteousness. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he goes on and says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the surprising nature of this event, the surprising nature of any tragedy is not that other people died, it's that you weren't there. That's the proper perspective. But it's not our perspective. In other words, when you're driving and a car accident happens next to you or something bad happens next to you or it almost hits you, you're like, whoa, that's crazy. That's, that's maybe more appropriate. But when something happens, it seems like bad like that. You're like, wow, why them? And he's like, no, no, no. The question is, why not you? This, is not, this does not tend to be our normal state of things. In other words, we don't tend to normally think in the way we're talking about, but we should. What Jesus is saying is surprises us. It surprised the disciples. They were surprised by the calamity and we're constantly surprised by it. When something bad happens, we say, oh my goodness, something bad happened. When we see tragedy happen, when we see death happen, and particularly death is what he's referring to, we're surprised by it constantly. Funerals are way easier to preach at than weddings for me. Weddings are great, good for you guys. I love weddings. Weddings are fun, but no one cares what I say at a wedding, for real. The bride and the groom are in front of me. I'm yelling in their face so everyone else can hear, all right? And all they're say, thinking is, oh, I'm sweating in this. Or would he stop talking? Or maybe his breath is bad, whatever. They're thinking about the flowers. And so maybe they're listening for a split second and they hear God, Jesus, what do you say? I'll do, okay, I'm getting ready for my lines coming up. Well, I got to pay attention. Will my ring fit? My hands swelling, like all that stuff. You get to a funeral and people have like snot running down their nose. And they could care less. They're just like, they're, they, they're, they are pin drop listening to every word. And here's why. Because we are so distracted that when death happens, we're constantly surprised. That's why we say things like, man, he was so young. What does that have to do with anything? He had his whole life to live. Do you see how when we talk about death, we have this false entitlement that we ought not to die. And in some sense, this is okay, right? Because we see that death is sort of an unnatural offense to us. But it surprises us. And, and there's a reason why, honestly, it's because we're distracted so much. Now, go to Genesis chapter five. I want us to understand why this is so significant, that death is such a big deal. And you say to yourself, well, Matt, I, go, I, I get this, but Jesus is trying to remind the disciples that they're surprised by the wrong thing. They're surprised by this calamity and they should be surprised by the, their, their, their life, their very life. So 
I want to start here because after the fall of Adam, right, you have, you've seen this reference, and we'll get to it in a minute, but all of a sudden you get to chapter five of Genesis. So you have creation, you have everything, and by the time you get to chapter five, you have this crazy passage. I'm turned to here many, many times. Again, we're surprised by the wrong thing in this passage. Notice what happens. We get here, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God made man, he made him in the likeness of God. Wow, that's awesome. Male and female, he created them. That's, that sounds pretty straightforward. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay, when Adam had lived 130 years, whoa, that's really old. I heard the oldest guy in America recently just died. He was 112 years old and he smoked 12 cigars a day. That guy just died. And someone's like, imagine how much longer he would have lived if he didn't smoke so many cigars. Um, Adam lived 130 years. That's a long time. And he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image named and named him Seth. And so you see right now that this whole genealogy starts with Adam and Adam dies. And you notice that everything that comes from Adam is also going to die, which leads to what Romans says. We know that in, as in Adam, all die. But notice that's not what tends to surprise. What surprises is how long they live. Look, look here. He goes on, he fathered Seth. And in the days of Adam, after he followed Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. What? That's a long time. That's a lot of vitamins. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Wow, that's a lot of years. Go down to verse 11. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. There's Kenan in verse 14. Then all the days of Kenan were 910 years when he died. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years when he died. There's Jared over here, the subway guy, right? Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Don't worry about Enoch. He's another story. Then you get to Methuselah. He's a long story. Look at verse 27. It says all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. There's Lamech. Well, he lived a long time, 777 years and then he died. And then you get Noah, and it talks about Noah going forward. The shock in the passage, though, isn't the amount of years that they live. The shock is that they actually die. When you read the passage, and you're, just, when you're, not, and you're surprised, and you just have no conception of where you are, just read it, all you're left with is God made man, God made everything, it is good, and by the time you get to chapter five, you see die, 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 die. I mean, like that's just in your face. It's in your face, the shock of death. It happens in your face. But ultimately, we shouldn't be surprised by death, right? Well, I mean, like, no one should be surprised by death. We know this is the story since Genesis. But we, as a people, are especially surprised by it. First of all, we live a lot longer than we used to live, right? We tend to have medicines that make us better. Our, our tolerance for sickness and death is very low, hence COVID, that we just got through. I mean, when you look at the death rates of people, the fact that people are gonna die, I'm like, people die every year. That's a true story. Back in the old days, if you had a toothache, you're dead, for real. That means, up, oh, you're dead. You're just literally dead. what do you have? I don't know, dead. They died all the time. All the, the women that, that have had C-sections, if we lived 100, 200 years ago, sorry, gone. Like we start to take for granted. And what happened is it's not like everyone would just go to where we normally when someone got a little older, meaning like when you're 40, they start dying of tuberculosis or something. They're in your house. So here's the young kids that are coming up in your house. And, you know, grandpa, grandma over here has tuberculosis, you know, or mom or someone else has tuberculosis. And they're right there deteriorating before your eyes. Everybody had death in their lives very often. When you had a lot of kids, you had a lot of death. 
It was a normal part of life until the last 150 years or so. All of a sudden, death seems like a distant thing. And when people start to get to those ages where death starts to become a normal, uh, it starts to approach, what do we do? We put them away from us, out of our sight. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. We go to visit them in other places. Death is something that we don't focus on. As in a culture, we focus on youth. We focus on youthfulness. We do this, but it's all a lie. And we're constantly surprised when someone dies. And yet, one out of one, people dies. Every single one of you will die. If you like my sermon, you're going to die. And if you don't like it, you're going to die. Death is it's going to happen. In fact, we could say people are dying that have never died before. That's true every single day. It's a, it, it's, it, you know, let me say this another one. How about this one? When we hear stories, this is one that gets me all the time. As a Christian, that bothers me the most is back in the day when they'd have like the talk show, like the Mary Povich, Maury Povich, or right, that's old school, right? Or like Montel Williams, or uh, let me think of some other ones. Whatever. These guys would come on and they'd interview the guy that says, oh, I was in the car crash and then I was going to die. And then I saw the light and I swam up and I came alive. And I'm like, that's great. But if you, if you look, if you zoom out enough, there's no such thing as a survival story. That's morbid, isn't it? You're like, Matt, why are you focusing on that? I'm like, the question is, why aren't you? It's a true story. It's a true story. There's no such thing as a survival story. No one gets out alive, and that's the point. Death tells us a few things. It tells us you are a creature. You are not the creator. We cannot control the weather and we cannot control the things in our own bodies. We cannot make our blood clot. We cannot do all sorts of things. You can't make your bones heal. You are a creature. You are not too important to die. Stop and think about this for a second. When you die and that happens, and I want to focus on this for a minute, when death happens to you, the world's going to keep moving on in a cruel sense. It's going to keep moving on and nothing's really going to change. The sun's still going to shine. The trash is still going to be delivered. Gas is going to need to be had. Rain's going to fall. Things will grow over the things you did. The stuff that you had, that you had in your house, that you treasured, the collections that you had will be auctioned off by your children who barely care about those things and while they're doing other things. The things that you cared about so much will be sold at a garage sale. Other people will enjoy your wealth. Everything you care about, you will lose. You will take nothing with you. This will happen to you. And the reason I'm saying this so harshly is because we've tended to push that away. It's like, that's morbid. I don't want to think about it, but it is the most factual thing. It's been scientifically demonstrable. You can prove it over and over again. It is 100% a certainty. And so we, and it tends to ruin everything that we do, doesn't it? It tends to ruin everything when we think about it. That's why we don't. That's why we don't want to think about it. It's harsh, but it's meant to humble us. It's meant to humble us. It's meant to terrify us and to color our lives in some sense. But of all the things it's supposed to do, it is not meant to surprise us. Death is a certainty. It is not meant to surprise us. Death isn't the surprising part in Genesis. The surprising part is go back to chapter two. And look with me at chapter two, verse 15. So we saw what happens with death. That's the part that shouldn't surprise us. It's harsh. It's mean. I take no joy in telling you about this. But look at verse 15 of chapter two. It says, the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The shock is not Genesis five that people die. The shock is, 
is that it took a thousand years for them to die. The shock is not the death, it is the delay. Now, we could say, spiritually speaking, they died, which, and then physically, that's the, the, the fruit of that. That's true. And a spiritual, but, the, but put all the theology aside for a minute. You just, you're reading the Bible as a normal thing. God is God. He says what he's going to say. He goes, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then what? They don't. They live. There's a delay. That when Jesus is saying to the earlier passage, he says, settle with your accuser on the way to the justice. The surprise is not that judgment's coming. The surprise is that it's not here yet, that it hasn't happened, that there's a delay, that there's something happening. In other words, go to 2 Peter, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 3. I turned here last week and used it as the outline. And I, again, I tell you that our passage today is so uniquely linked to it. It's basically last week's sermon part two. But in 2 Peter this picture of the day of the Lord, I just want you to think about judgment in general and what Jesus refers to, but notice what he says in verse nine or verse eight. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we say all, who does he mean? Now, I've had these theological discussions and we could get into it in a minute, but um, let me take you on a side journey for a minute. Go, to, go, to, go with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. So stay there in that passage with your finger and go to Romans 9. We'll see if we can prove this to you for a minute. When he says, God doesn't want any to perish, what does he mean? What he does not mean is God's just hoping that, that people will get saved and he can't do anything about it. Some, this crazy part here... Um, Let's look at verse 22, or verse 21. Let's start there, 921. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen to this very carefully. When we talk about why God delays, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? No, no, don't, no don't move past the comma for a moment, moment. God is glorified in his wrath on display. In the same way, um, when you watch Taken and Liam Neeson goes out and takes the bad guys and you're rooting for him because you want them to get justice, we should root for God to pour his wrath out upon sin and upon that, that stuff. Like that he's, he's, he's glorified in this, in, his, in this picture. But notice what he says. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, what he's saying is this, the timeline of God's delay, we say, why is God delayed? If he says, the day you'll eat it, you'll surely die, and then there's a delay. There's a delay in our lives right now. And at, in, the, in the second Peter passage, keep that in mind, go back there really quickly, keeping in, keep in mind what he just said. He goes on and he says, but the day of the Lord will come. He says, he's not patient. Let's look at verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he goes on. If you go down um, uh, verse 11, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? How would you hasten the coming day of God? In other words, if you know he's going to come and you know he's going to do it, we're supposed to be patient. On one side, we're supposed to be patient, but on another side, we're supposed to speed it up. Man, there's a lot of suffering in this world, Matt. 
I want to end the suffering. I'm like, you want to make that suffering go away quickly? He goes, yes. I'm like, then make as many disciples as you can because we exist on planet earth and his delay exists because other people will say yes to the gospel. And every bit of suffering we face right now exists because those people haven't come home yet. What do I mean by that? God ordained that I would be saved before the foundation of the earth. If you're a Christian, he ordained that you'd be saved before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1 talks all about this. What does that mean? That means that when someone was crying out during the Holocaust, God, how could you put up with such evil? The answer has to be, well, because Matt wasn't born yet and I ordained that Matt would be saved by the gospel and that I would pour out my glory, my, my grace upon him for an eternity and he hasn't been born yet. So I'm going to put up with these vessels of wrath. I'm going to put up with the, the, the evil that I see. I'm not going to judge it yet because I have a, a plan to save people that I ordained since the beginning of the earth. And so when Peter says, count this as salvation, consider it as salvation. It means his delay is for a purpose. And as Christians, we know what his delay is for. In fact, we're, so we're surprised by death, but we should be surprised by his delay. And now we know why is he delaying? We should see it as an opportunity to share the gospel. That's, that's kind of what we get to in this past. We're not supposed to take it for granted. Again, that is the reason for why he hasn't come back yet. When you look at something bad, you say, God, you know, someone says, well, why would God allow evil? I'm like, well, remember when the flood happened and he didn't for a minute? Like, that's coming. That's what Peter's referring to. But in the meantime, he saved Noah out of that flood. In the meantime, he has another ark called Christ. He's telling everyone to get on the boat, basically. Get in, you know, we're going to be saved by being in Christ. That was, that's what we talked about last time. But go back to Luke chapter 3 for a minute, because in our passage, notice, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a, there's a warning in our passage, but there's also a glorious, glorious invitation. And that's, again, the surprise. What do I mean by that? Justice is, is totally makes sense in a mathematical way. We think that God grades on a curve. That's kind of how we look at it. That's how we're, we're used to that. If you're ever in a class, when you get to college and you have a large class that's impacted. So when I went to UC Santa Barbara, I remember one of my classes had over 2,000 students in the one class. And so, you know, they graded on a curve. And so all you had to do is be better than half the dummies in the room and you're going to do great, right? And so you're like, well, that's, I mean, that's what a curve is. So you, the curve looks like this. You get your test back and you find out you got a D and you're like, man, that's terrible. But then you look around and realize everyone else got Fs and you're like, I got an A. That's a curve. You want to know why people hated Jesus? The Pharisees, they were doing, they had D's and everyone else had F's. So they're like, man, I got an A. And then Jesus comes along and it's a perfect score and breaks the whole curve. No one likes that kid in class. And that's why they don't like Jesus. He breaks the curve. There is no curve anymore. He gets hundred percent perfectly sitting in his seat. Like no one likes that kid anymore because well, now the curve's broken and now the D is actually a D and the Pharisees actually a Pharisee. You guys all see what's at stake when Jesus, with, with this picture of Jesus. And so that's the, 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 the reason that we struggle so much. So the crazy part about judgment doesn't, isn't surprising to us. Everyone, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all, everyone, every single person, all of us, all of us will die every single one of us, all of us. That shouldn't surprise us. But the weird, crazy thing is, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a, a glimmer of amazingness in there. Likewise perish. Does it mean that you won't perish if you repent? What does that mean? Well, he's in line with what he started saying in Luke chapter three. Look at verse one. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, um, Caesar Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of region of 
Iturea and Trachonitis and uh, Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. I should have skipped ahead of this part. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And so this quotes Isaiah saying that he's going to make the path straight, prepare the way for the Lord. And he said, therefore, to the crowds, verse seven, that came out to be baptized by him. Remember how shocking this is because Jerusalem represented the curve. They said, hey, this is what righteousness looks like. And they're like presenting righteousness on a curve. And so John the Baptist comes and goes outside the city, says, there's no, there's no curve. You need to leave that place to be saved. And they had to come out into the wilderness to be baptized. And so all of a sudden the Pharisees come out and he says, to the crowds that came out to be baptized and the rest, you brood of vipers. Wow. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says in verse eight, what Jesus is saying in our passage, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When he says bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he's speaking about something that's going to relate to the next passage. But pay attention to that word, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you go down to uh, verse 15, he says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mighty tonight is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And you say to yourself, well, maybe that's talking about Pentecost. And then he says in verse 17, it's not. <laughs> his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When Jesus just said in our passage, I, I can't wait to cast fire on earth. That's what he's talking about. It's what John the Baptist was looking at. John the Baptist looking forward to the coming of Christ sort of conflates the first and second. The surprise about Jesus is that his, that his winnowing judgment doesn't happen right then. In fact, when John's telling them about Jesus coming, he says he's going to come and judge. John is surprised that it doesn't happen yet. In fact, he tells Jesus at one point because judgment hasn't come, he goes, are you the one to come or should we look for another? The surprise is that it didn't come yet. Surprise that it didn't come yet. That's, that's like overwhelmingly crazy. And so that's the part, that's the big giant surprise in our passage. Judgment is coming is not the surprise. His delay, the very fact that he stood before him and headed to a cross, that's the part that John the Baptist himself, as he's talking about Jesus, wasn't even looking at. And that's the part that Jesus, what he says, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish, is no one was even paying attention to. In other words, let me just put this to you this way. Like everyone standing here, every day that you live is a mercy. It's an invitation and it's an opportunity to repent, an opportunity we don't deserve. You are not promised tomorrow. You're not promised 10 minutes from now. It's a true story. You can distract yourself as much as you want, but you know I'm telling you the most plain truth that you can, I can claim. The surprising thing, though, is this good news that he says. If you look in forward, he goes on, he says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. That's good news. The good news is that Judgment hasn't happened yet. The good news is that there's an opportunity. You can repent and you can be saved. Was, we are surprised, in other words, by calamity, but we should be surprised by this delay. You know, instead of being surprised by death, be surprised by the delay, by the invitation, by, by what is put forward to us, which leads us to the next section of our passage. He says, bear fruit and keep them with repentance. Look at our passage right now, and let's look at the next section. He told this parable. So again, Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Now we can see the surprising part. 
Verse six, he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, keep in mind earlier what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and the people that came to him. They said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here's Jesus telling a parable about a fig tree, which is always a picture of Israel in, in a lot of ways. And so, but I don't wanna get too particular here because he makes it broad. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. John the Baptist says, bear fruit and keep in repentance. Here's a parable. Where's your fruit? And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. This is significant because back in the day, the, the rabbinical picture was you weren't supposed to take fruit off of a tree and harvest for like three years to let it continue to bear the fruit before you harvested it. This guy comes back and says, for three years, I haven't harvested anything and there's nothing on the tree. Like what, is, what in the world? I've given it three years to do this without messing with it at all. And there's no fruit. For three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. In other words, that's the, the normal time period that you should have been able to, you're supposed to stop yourself from harvesting because there's so much fruit, basically. But in other words, he's like, there's nothing on it. For three years, there's nothing on it. I find none. Cut it down. I think this is referring to this nation, to the people, to the Israel, but it's referring broadly to the judgment that he comes to bring. And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In other words, he's saying the same thing. Judgment's coming. But the most surprising thing ever is that there's a delay. In other words, this guy hears this and he says, hey, here's a fig tree, which is obviously rotten. And he says, you know what? Maybe something cool will happen next year. What? That's the part that's supposed to be like, what in the world is going on with this fig tree? Now, what, what exactly is happening here? Especially when you talk about the root and the fruit. Go to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. And again, here's where I come to familiar passages again, but I just, it's so, I want you to connect the dots. Take these familiar passages and, and make sure the roads connect properly. In Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and ultimately this, these are the people that are ruling Israel at the time. And he says, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. I mean, that's what John the Baptist is saying. These people came to the, be baptized by him and said, yeah, yeah, all through John's gospel, people said, oh, we believe in you, but they didn't actually believe in Jesus. They said, they said we weren't born in sexual immorality. He says, you're of your father, the devil. So like there, there's something that's going on here that he's saying like, you'll know them by their fruits. Well, what, what are the fruits of repentance he's talking about? And why is fruit so significant? Look here in verse 16. When we think of fruits, we're like, oh, works versus faith. No, no, put that aside for a minute. Because you recognize that their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. All right. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. That's what Jesus is referring to. Here's the vine dresser coming to his vine to see if there's fruit on it, and there's none. And so that the problem is the reason there's no fruit. Jesus isn't dumb. He's not like, why isn't there fruit on it? He knows it's because the root is bad. The reason that the fig tree doesn't bear fruit is that it's got a bad root. Nothing good is going to come from it. That's the normal position. Why? Because of the root. It's bad. Your fruits in your life point to the root. That's the problem. In other words, the Bible says that the reason that we sin, the reason that we lie is that by nature, the root, our nature is that we are liars. I lie because I'm a liar right? We commit adulteries because by nature we're adultery. We are all murderers who haven't been in the right circumstance yet to murder. 
by nature. The sin is the act, but the nature, the root, is what bears the fruit. And so the weird, surprising thing is to recognize that here's a rotten root. All of us, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. What does that point to about our root? Now think about this for a minute. What's so shocking now? If everyone's going to bear bad fruit, if everyone's root is rotten, if everyone's that way, all of a sudden when Jesus gives this invitation to repent, something amazing is going on. Go back to John chapter three. And again, let's look at this familiar passage that I've referred to many, many times. John three. I talked about this just on Tuesday after theology and apologetics with, a, with an individual. And it really got me fired up thinking about it more. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees are the people he just referred to that have the rotten root. Amen. Okay. And his name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. What were they known for? They were people that were self-righteous. They were meritorious. That's what they did. And the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Well, that's nice of you, Rabbi. But Jesus basically rebukes him. He answered him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word born again also means born from above, but I think born again is appropriate here. Unless someone is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, you're a poser. You can't even talk about the things you're talking about unless you're born again. What? Nicodemus' response is a bit uh, mocking, a bit silly, but also makes a lot of sense. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? The key challenge with Nicodemus is the objective agent being the doing here. What does he say? How can a man be born when he's old? And can a man, can you enter a second time into his mother's womb? In other words, he's like, he's from a meritorious religion and he's saying, what can I do to, a, to be born again? How can I, can I climb back into my mother's womb? What a silly thing to tell me. And Jesus responds to him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water the first time, spirit the second time. That's what he means too. And just so you don't miss it, he says it. Verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Let me break this down for you. Jesus, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus is like, well, what can I do to be born again? Jesus is like, nothing. What did you do to be born the first time? Nothing. Nothing, zero things. It just happened to you. He just, just in the same way you don't know where it comes from, so it is with being born again. You don't take part in it. Now, why would he do this? Why would he say this? Well, first of all, you know, he says, unless you bear fruit, unless you do this, he wants them to see this is impossible. Jesus giving an impossible invitation. And so this Pharisee, this Nicodemus, he, that's what he stops him with. How can I be saved? What can I do to see the kingdom of heaven? He's like, nothing, you can't do anything. In the same way that Nicodemus was not humbled by death, he was not humbled by his unrighteousness. He should have recognized, you know what? I do die. That's because I'm unrighteous. I deserve to die. But instead, he created this false system that gave him a sense of superiority over other people. And Jesus wants to wake him up. The law didn't work. So now he's waking up that you are unable to save yourself. You can't do anything to be born again. And we're like, well, I, I thought I could do this stuff. He's like, no, no, the root is the problem. And so what is the answer? You have to have a new root. You have to be born again. And notice what he says. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And so Jesus explains and gets to the gospel and he keeps talking. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, that sounds like good news. Isn't that good news? Amen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. The new birth is a surprise. This invitation is a surprise. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. When Jesus is standing before him, what Nicodemus needed to say was, I'm lost. I can do nothing. I'm totally unable to do anything about my death. I'm totally unable to do anything about my unrighteousness. And Jesus says, well, good, because I came to do something. That's what he says in this next passage. You want to believe in what I do? That's how you're saved. That's what it happens. And we know the Holy Spirit works in the background. We know all these things happen, but he goes on and he says, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Well, amen, that's the surprise. The not surprise is whoever does not believe is condemned already. Every person is condemned already. We say to ourselves, why doesn't God save everyone? But that's, that's the wrong question. The real question is, why does God save anyone? Everyone's already condemned, already. And when we say, well, why doesn't God save everyone? What we do is we smuggle into that question that God ought to save everyone, that people don't actually deserve judgment. But the fact that they deserve judgment is proven constantly through the Bible, through our lives, through the fruit we bear. The wages of sin equals death. We know we deserve judgment if we're paying attention to it. The surprise is not why doesn't God save everyone? It's why does he save anyone? This is the judgment. They're condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Here it is. The light is coming to the world. and The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's why the Pharisees didn't want to come in. They didn't want their heart to be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is interesting, because what Jesus is saying in Nicodemus is there's nothing you can do to be saved. And then he goes on and gives this invitation to something impossible carried out by God, which is to be born again. Think about being born again. What's the problem the first time is that we're born from Adam. I'm in Adam. My, my parents are my problem, and their parents are their problem, and their parents are their problem, all the way back to our first parents, which is Adam. And we inherit that nature. That's the problem. And so I need to have a new birth. That's why I need to be born again. I need to be adopted. And so God, and through the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us and gives us a new root that has new desires, that bears new fruit. And that fruit is demonstrable. We come to God to show that's the work in the gospel that happens. In other words, when you think about this for a minute, go to John 15. John 15, same idea. When Jesus says in John 15, contrast the bad root, the root that can't bear fruit, right? To what Jesus says about us. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. In other words, he's the real root that we bear fruit from. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. That's Nicodemus' problem. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branch, branches are gathered and thrown in the fire. Wow, this judgment is right there again and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you and whatever you wish, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I love, I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. This is a new commandment, right? So there's something about how we love one another. And he says, greater love is one, no one than this that someone lays down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command so you, may, you will love one another. In other words, like water turned to wine. I mean, contrast, it's the, the first miracle Jesus does at a wedding. Here's, a, here's wine, it comes from a fruit, from a vine. But the very first miracle, he takes water, no vine at all, and it turns to wine through him. Through him. Our righteousness, there's no, there's no previous vine to start with. He starts with water, it turns to wine. When you're born again, he gives you a new nature. He gives you a new root and you bear new fruit. So when Jesus, the surprising, amazing, impossible thing is that we should die, that we should be rooted up and, and taken out. The, the impossible thing is that this new thing happens, this new invitation happens. That's the surprise in the story. In other words, go to Ephesians chapter two. We're almost done here, three verses left. When Jesus is in this whole passage and he says to them, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. And then he says, there's like a period of time that you have. In other words, there's a second chance. You, can, you have until you die to repent, but you don't know how long that is. But man, every day is a mercy and an opportunity. Everyone knows someone that's died and he said, oh, if I only shared the gospel with that person. I get that. But what about you here? I know there's some people here right now. There's people always and every time I preach a sermon that are not Christians, that hear the words I'm saying and ignore them. And I'm trying to tell you right now, you are not promised even a safe drive home. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to be honest. And you know it's true. We have a wonderful mercy. In Ephesians 2, the surprise is not wrath. Why? Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, here it is, by nature, by root, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. So what is that? If you stop right there, period, end of story, then what do you get? Wrath. Wrath is not surprising upon children of wrath. Wrath is not surprising upon Adam. What is surprising is that God sent his son in the flesh. The, what's surprising is verse four, the word but. All of a sudden, that's the surprise. What's the mystery of Christmas? But, again, the question, why, why doesn't God save everyone? The question is, why does God save anyone? You know, this very presence, this very invitation that he puts before them is the, the surprise. In other words, another way to put it is this way. We say to ourselves, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's what we say. But that's, that's only happened one time ever in history, and he volunteered. That's what happens. But, but God, being rich in mercy, that's the, you're like, I, you're confused right now. Everything makes sense. All of a sudden, but God, being rich in mercy, what? Because of the great love with which he loved us, the, the sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses, the, the, the filthy vine made us alive together, born again with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, the free, unearned gift of God. That's what Christmas is celebrating. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward, uh, toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the Romans 9 passage, the vessels of mercy. 
For by grace, the free unmerited gift of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And that is the result of what he has saved us for. Again, that's the surprise. That is the surprise of Christmas. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 50. What do we celebrate? Think about this for a second. You're going to die. You're going to die. That's terrible. And we know this. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. How could you enjoy heaven if you were able to go there? First of all, you'd ruin it because you're not perfect. But second of all, how could you enjoy it because you know it's going to end? I mean, that's the thing that we've talked about again and again, that because you know you're going to die, the best things that happen to you have a major tinge of sadness to them. When you're on that special trip with all your friends and there's that moment and the sun's setting or what something cool happens is, there's a moment, there's a part of you that's melancholy because you know it's going to end. How do you really enjoy that? Like you can enjoy it for a second, but you know it's going to end. You're constantly tainted and tinged with the fact that you're perishable, constantly. And the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. That is the the real news that we have to face right now. You cannot inherit these things, but behold, I tell you a mystery. That means a secret, but let me say this. Another way to look at this is a surprise. I tell you a surprise. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall all sleep, speaking about dying in this case, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that death has not, it still stings, doesn't it? Because we haven't been given this imperishable body yet. One day we will. We think about what Jesus accomplished, what God gave to us on Christmas. This is the surprise. When you think back in Genesis where Abraham was told to sacrifice his perfect son Isaac, his only son Isaac, and we think of what a cruel thing to do. Here he was standing on Mount Moriah, not sacrificing his son Isaac, and all the way fast forward, God sent his only son. He gave his son. He did the thing he didn't ask Abraham to do for you. That's the surprise. The surprise is not, you know, again, I've said before, the picture is not that, that, that salvation is, again, that, that just the boys that did something wrong and God only saved son. The surprise that man is in the midst of sinning against him, in the midst of raping and pillaging and, and sinning, and God takes some of those criminals doing criminal things and says, I'm going to set my love upon that person and then give my son for that person. You're not supposed to be like, oh, that makes sense. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And it was like, whoa, what do I mean? That's crazy. He volunteered for this. Go to Hebrews chapter two. Last verse, the surprise to me in our passage, as I look at it, is that Jesus standing there before him, judgment is coming, amen, that's like whatever. What's crazy is that here's God himself in the flesh standing right in front of him, inviting them to repent. In space and time and history, the creator of everything in flesh and blood standing right before them, inviting them to repent. That's the surprise. That's the part that's supposed to get us. Look at what Hebrews says in chapter two, verse 14. 
It says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We might distract ourselves, we might say these things, but it's because we just don't want to think about this scary thing. But all of a sudden, what Jesus accomplished, it settles all of it. Death is a certainty. There's no question about it. Then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, a baby is born. God with us. It is an impossible rescue mission. Like, there's no, you can't even fathom it. It, is, it seems foolish from the outside that God did all of this for you. In other words, if I could sum this up finally and say it this way, you don't need to protect your Christmas celebration from calamities, from the things that go wrong, from the struggles, from the age, from the, the, the diagnoses, from the things. When you stop distracting yourself from your fears and your frustrations and your futility, this is the season where I'm going to look at it right in the face. And when you stop trying to hide your sorrows and your sin, you just like take them out and look at them for a second. Stare them right in the face. Then you'll find the surprising joy of what Christmas represents. Stop being surprised by death. Face it boldly. For the light of Christmas shines brightest where death casts its shadow. Take a quick look. Let's pray. Father, as we come to think of this invitation Jesus gives us, we tend to be so easily surprised by the calamities we see. And of all the seasons where we're meant to remember the real surprise of it all, we so easily overlook it. I pray, Father, as your people, the the people in this room that know you today, that they would celebrate Christmas anew and afresh, that we would grasp just a glimpse of the amazing miracle of your grace. We would be surprised by it. I pray for those that don't know you, that they would recognize the certainty of their death, the certainty of their judgment, and they would recognize that an impossible offer has been given to them. They would recognize that you sent your son to take the place of those who would believe in them, that you sent your son to pay the price, the penalty for their sins, and that that offer is extended today, and we exist on planet Earth right now because there's people at this very moment, whether in this room or on the screen or out, out as we go about, that will still respond to that message, and you are waiting for that message to continue to work so that all will be saved, who will be saved. And I pray, Father, that we would be bold about this. I pray that those that don't know you today will be saved, that we can hear about it. God, thank you so much for this passage, and I pray that it would bear more fruit than we can ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.